Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Dating can be amazing, and for many people, it can bring up all kinds of fears, and most of us have some horror story, or maybe more than one, as we evaluate the history of our dating lives. So today, I am so excited to have on the show Allie Drucker, who is an author and freelance writer. She covers topics around sexual health, relationships, and pop culture. And Allie was previously the senior sex and dating editor at Cosmopolitan and Maxim. Her work has appeared everywhere in New York Magazine, HuffPost, Refinery29. And her new book, Do As I Say, Not Who I Did, Honest Advice on Hookups and Relationships in College is a shame-free affirmative sex education for college-aged women and anyone who's really looking to discover what they want in sex and relationships. Ellie, thanks so much for being here with me today. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. What prompted you to write this book? I mean, your background is in sexual health and, and relationships, but how did you take that and parlay it into this work? Of course. I think I got the idea for it when I was working at Cosmo and interviewing and working with a lot of young women in this age group and sort of seeing the areas that, you know, maybe they wished they had more guidance on when they were younger and looking back and like, oh gosh, I, I dealt with all those same issues too. So I wanted to create a sexual health survival guide for young women entering college because for so many of them, it's their first time away from home, you know, out of the family home. They have a lot of independence. And with that becomes a lot of opportunities, a lot of choices, but without information, choices can feel really paralyzing. And, you know, like most Americans, our sex ed falls woefully short and we can't be certain that parents are always filling in the gaps because those are really hard conversations to have. Right. So um, I did gear it towards that age group, but even though it does kind of apply to that college season of life, I honestly think there's tons of applicable advice in there that's going to resonate no matter where you're at with your dating life. Absolutely. I had a, a, a quick read through your book and I, I thought, wow, so many of these topics are still relevant for people in my friend groups in their 30s and 40s who are dating. I mean, mm -hmm. it just kind of stays relevant because we as humans are always evolving and dating culture evolves. And I wonder Absolutely. when you kind of put this book yeah, when you put this book together, what were some of the main topics that you thought women should know about going into college? Yeah, um, I think the crux of it, which again applies college or not, is that 
you are allowed and encouraged to be empowered in your relationships. You know, it's your body, it's your life, and nothing is owed when it comes to sex. And I think that's a really central theme. You know, we're allowed to make mistakes because there are factors at play that might have influenced the decisions you made. And it's okay if something didn't work out the way you wanted because, you know, even if it's not the proudest choice you've ever made, you have the opportunity to learn from every interaction and do it differently in, in the future in a way that feels more authentic to you. And I think that's a message everyone needs to hear, but that's one of the things that I really went in there hoping to convey. So true. I think when, when I look back on dating in my early 20s, it, I mean, <laughs> right? wow, what a disaster. <laughs> um, it... <laughs> I mean, the things that most people say this, but if I knew then what I know now, it would have been a very different kind of uh, approach to dating. And I think your book really sets up that wisdom for people right. to learn from other people's mistakes. And the mm-hmm. title of your book is so apropos of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, my mom hates yeah. it, which is how I know it's a, a good and funny title. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um so you, one of the quotes that I really loved in your book was your body is not a cocktail party and you are not the hostess. Let's break that down a little bit. Yeah. I think that, you know, especially when you're young, there can be a lot of pressure to, to please, to be accommodating, to not rock the boat and to be welcoming. And in that desire for things to go smoothly, because let's face it, who likes conflict? Nobody likes conflict you can sometimes forget your autonomy and you can find yourself doing things not because you truly want to, but because you think it's going to be easiest. And that's really a way to get yourself into situations where, you know, you're not having an authentic experience and you're potentially putting yourself in an unsafe position. And I want to kind of hammer home that idea that like nothing is owed in sex. It's not your job to be polite. It's not your job to be accommodating, like be a good person, be a fair partner but like you are never obligated to be welcoming and appeasing before being authentic and honest. Yes. Um, that is <laughs> such a, a powerful message that I really want everyone to hold on to um, in listening to this. Cause I think it really conveys um, an implicit message that a lot of women receive growing up about how they are sort of uh, gatekeepers to sexual mm-hmm. pleasure right? And, and the quote, your body's not a cocktail party and you are not the hostess to me conveys that so clearly. Like you are not the person just saying, yes, you can have access to my body. I think it's important to shift that mindset. If it's a mindset that somebody has around, um, not just providing access to pleasure through your body, but really thinking about what you want in terms of your own pleasure and letting that be a guidepost and Absolutely. into the kinds of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just about being the one to say yes or no, or red light, green light. It's about how can we both be partners together to arrive at things that are going to be mutually pleasurable that make us both feel safe and secure. And that's, that's hard. It's hard when you're 18 and it's hard when you're 30 or 40. (laughs) It can be, it can be, but it is a major um, opportunity in college. Uh, So Mm -hmm. many people go to college, of course, for the education, but really for the social experience and for the, the practice of being an adult in the world in this microcosm that is college. And it's a great space to think about directionally, how am I showing up in the world and what am I 
what am I allowing? What am I trying to uh, cultivate? Exactly. Yeah. It's this, you know, this liminal space where you're kind of between, you know, adolescence and adulthood and you have all of the access of, you know, adults. You have like a place of your own that you can invite somebody back to. But, you know, especially in that age group, you know, your brain is literally not done developing yet. So I liken it. I remember in my proposal for why I wanted to write this book, it's like having like a high powered sports car with a crazy revved up engine and no brakes, you know, no steering wheel. You'd have a lot of freedom, (laughs) a lot of access, but like not necessarily the understanding of the direction you want to take things in. (laughs) That's such a great (laughs) analogy. Um, So what are some of the biggest dilemmas that you think people run into, especially women in college when they are testing out the gas pedal in these fancy sport car brains that they have? Totally. Um, I think not being totally aware of their ability to control situations. And, you know, we're going to go at this from the understanding that you're with an empathetic partner who would be receptive to what you want to hear because otherwise, you know, that's assault and that's a different conversation. But I think this this right. desire not to rock the boat was something that really came up in a ton of interviews. You know, I'd have women telling me like, oh, you know, he did this and this during sex and I didn't really like it. And so I'd push a little bit and say, well, what happened? You know, they're like, well, I didn't really say anything. I'm like, oh, well, why not? And they're like, well, I guess I was waiting to see if he did it again. And then I would have said something. It's like, no, you have the ability, even the first time to say no, you know, no is a complete sentence. (laughs) That's one of my like one rules of of dating to keep an eye on. Like no is a complete sentence. It's not your job to justify, to rationalize, to placate. Like you are allowed to say no, no questions asked. That's right. Full stop. And it's a great litmus test also to kind of think about what kind of partner you're with because totally. a partner who is respectful will hear your no and they'll say, cool, I'll stop. And and they won't push back. But if somebody is pushing or trying to guilt you and really showing up in this way that that traverses the boundary that you've just set you may decide that that person is not a safe enough partner for you to be with moving forward because it good sex relies on a foundation of mutuality and on respect for each other's boundaries. Absolutely. And I think there's this tendency to look at the mistakes you make, especially in this young age group and say like, she should have known better. It's like, well, how can you know better unless you've seen better, you've experienced better? If your first few experiences are kind of fraught and include interactions that didn't make you feel safe and secure, you haven't been taught the, the signposting and the goals of how to get to where you want to be. You don't have anything to compare it to yet. So I think there's also a whole lot of compassion to be had when we're learning. We have to have the freedom to make mistakes. And I wish that didn't come with bad sex and unfortunate sexual experiences where you don't always feel like you were heard. But sometimes that is the reality of learning. And I'd love to live in the beautiful future where that doesn't occur. But sometimes it really is trial and error. And we've got to have a little bit of compassion and understanding for growth that will come in time. (laughs) Yes. I'm thinking about the 20 year old me and the compassion to have for her, right? All the decisions that, that were made exactly. from that place of naivete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
When you're first getting started in sex and dating, it's such an important time to give yourself permission to experiment with being curious about what works for you and really using your voice in a way that um, does affirm what you like and what feels good and what meets your needs and to really create awareness and limitations with people or for yourself when you know that something isn't a good fit for you or isn't pleasurable. And I wonder how, how do you recommend people start that process of exploration, especially if they're newer to sex and they, they either don't know what they want or they've seen things in porn or, or heard from friends things to try and do, and they don't really have a good um, like internal model for that yet. Totally. Um, I think that experimentation and that curiosity has to start with you and your body first. You, I mean, as hokey as it sounds, as Judy Bloom as it might seem, you have to touch yourself. You have to masturbate. I think it's totally recommended to look at yourself with a hand mirror, not because it needs to be this transformative, oh my goodness, look at how magical my body is type of moment, but because you can't talk about your body unless you know your own anatomy. You have to physically see like, where is my clitoris? Where is the opening of my vagina? Like get a sense for that literally and try touching yourself, try getting to a spot that, you know, maybe you don't know how to give yourself an orgasm. That's fine. Find places to touch that at least feel good and comforting and kind of give you a warming sensation and get a sense of that first because nobody is a mind reader. They can't come to your particular geography and know exactly what to do if you're not a little bit familiar with that first and then talk about it. Literally look at yourself in a mirror and practice saying things that might feel a little weird, like, oh, I like it when you touch X, Y, Z, or can you please hold me and do whatever? Because then no matter what, it won't be the first time you've ever said it. Because communicating about sex is like using any muscle. We need to practice it. We need to build it in order for them to be strong enough to be effective. So those things might seem very juvenile, but they really help build that foundation of being comfortable talking about your body and kind of extinguishing some of that shame that people can have naturally about sex. I really love that that tip. And, and I think it's so true. When we practice saying things out loud, we develop procedural memory for those mm-hmm. experiences and it becomes easier to access that in, in a moment where maybe our feelings are a little bit more charged, mm-hmm. you know, like in a first time or second time or third time sexual experience. <laughs> so it's really great to think about practicing that language and also to think about borrowing language. It's okay to listen to um, audio erotica or read some written erotica or even watch some ethically produced uh, porn so that you can really get a sense of different fantasy archetypes, different ways of being touched, different languaging, different ways to create excitement and arousal with your requests. I think there's a lot of educational material out there that can be really good mm-hmm. when you're first learning how to think about your own relationship with sex. Absolutely. That's a wonderful point. I think some people are really quick to write off porn and erotica and you do need to approach it with some caveats because a lot of it is 
incredibly misogynistic and unrealistic and totally the opposite of instructive. You know, anything where somebody appears to have an orgasm at the first touch of the partner on screen, it's probably not to be trusted, but there's a lot of good, you know, checklist things that you can look out for to get a sense of whether, you know, the pornography you're viewing is ethical. You know, you want to look for a lot of different body shapes Mm -hmm. and sizes, a lot of different, you know, labia and vulvas that look different, not just the one type that you might see represented, you know, different races, different ethnicities. If you're like, you know, only viewing sex from this very narrow heterosexual lens that a lot of porn views, it it might not be that helpful and it can be the opposite of helpful, but ethical porn where people are truly kind of focusing and centering pleasure can give you an amazing wealth of ideas to try. And there's nothing wrong with trying something, deciding you don't like it, and then never looking back, but you might wind up discovering something that you really love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about dating apps. You're kind of 50-50 on them, yeah? I am. You know, I think that on one hand, much ink has been spilt about how it's turned dating into like this system of gamification where we swipe endlessly and, you know, don't respond to the people under on the other end and forget indeed that there's a human on the other end. And that can kind of breed this feeling that people are disposable when we certainly are not. But on the other hand, I met my husband on a dating app. So who am I to cast aspersions? I think they can be, they can really set you up to meet the kind of person you wouldn't have met in your normal track of, oh, office, bar with friends, home. They can, they can broaden your horizons too. So true. I think it's really about how you use them and how you Mm -hmm. set up your own intentions and then really how you discern what you're receiving from other people back. Because I don't know that there's a right or a wrong way to use the app. There's just so much variability based on what people's goals are and their motives. Mm -hmm. Um, But really thinking about what am I conveying to the world about who I am and what's important to me? And also what are other people conveying to the world about what they want? And is there a synergy here? I think is a different approach to consider, but so many people do talk about feeling like they are um, just sort of an object on a shelf and they're either being swiped on a lot or left or right or up or down, whatever swiping direction is good and good and bad. Um, (laughs) But it can feel really dehumanizing and disheartening. What are some of the tips that you have for people who are trying to really be intentional about creating a relationship or having something more meaningful on an app? How should they approach their profile or other people's? Absolutely. You know, and I think your mileage may vary, just my personal opinions here, but I know that I always looked out for people who had effort in their profile where they had specific things about what they liked and clearly made an effort to some degree to convey who they were. And that gave me a natural opening to be able to like ask a question. You know, you're not just starting from the hi, hi, how are you? How are you? You know, you could go right in there with like, oh, so why is that your favorite movie? What do you like about it? Even if it's just a small way in, that was always really helpful because the people who put effort into conveying themselves as you know, the, the, way, the way they wanted to be seen, at least I could tell they, you know, they cared about trying to attract someone like-minded, you know, like it really showed that perhaps they were there to put a bit more effort in. On the other hand, if you're looking at, you know, just a carousel of images of someone flexing in a mirror, and like holding a fish, which there was a surprising amount of men holding fish when I was on these apps. 
I don't know what that was about. You know, it's like, okay, you really only want to show me pictures. And like, maybe that's not what I'm looking for right now. And by the same token, I would, I would try to do the same. I would try to give an honest snapshot of, of who I was through like some carefully chosen, hopefully witty sounding like explanations of my personality. When people are going back and forth, what are some good ways to create icebreakers? I mean, you mentioned one, right? Picking something out of their content on on their profile that really is meaningful to them and is an in. What about like after that? How do how do you keep that conversation going? Or what are some other ways to get creative in introducing yourself or making a connection? Sure. Well, one way is to really go all in. And if you have like a good enough feeling from your initial, whatever interaction, you can just say like, Hey, I'd rather get to know you in person and just go straight to that attempt to see if there's in-person chemistry. And that can kind of save you a lot of time going back and forth, hemming and hawing and texting. And another way is to just have a list of pre-written questions. You can keep them in your notes app on your phone that you can stick to. Like I remember, and this is going to date me, but like, okay, Cupid had this whole like crazy profile matching set of questions. And a lot of them were like really nuts. Like I remember one of them was like, in a certain light, wouldn't nuclear war be exciting? And like, no, but you can go with some of those like pre-written questions to have in your back pocket to slide in there if you feel like there's a lull. And if, you know, they go with it and they're willing to play along Maybe that's somebody who's who's game to give it a shot. So nothing wrong with having like literal like your index cards in your back pocket, like things to go to if the date gets awkward. But you know the the modern equivalent, which is in your notes app on your phone. <laughs> I love that. That's such an interesting question. I wonder if it's intentionally provocative to help people rule out. Yeah, um, I think they were. They could be semi-inflammatory, yeah. but maybe that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. It's curious. Dating has evolved so much. And in the last 10 or 15 years, we've really seen such an increase in things like sexting and the sending of nudes. In fact, I was reading in a recent uh, Pew Research um, data summary that something like 56% of women between the ages of 18 and 49 have received an unsolicited nude or sexually explicit message from mm-hmm. um from someone on a dating app. And I wonder your experience with that. What are you hearing from a lot of the other people that you've interviewed in your work? Yeah, I think like the unsolicited dick pic is still a thing. And unfortunately, I don't know of any magic cure to get people to stop doing that. I think that's a conversation about toxic masculinity in general. You know, it's really important to always get consent before you know, giving and sending those photos and receiving. Um, I know there's even some trend where they'd be like airdropped in public places. And it's truly just a form of harassment. You know, mm-hmm. it's a horrible trend. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. definitely in keeping with the interviews I've done. I, a lot of young women have experienced that short of just like setting a very firm boundary, deleting the photo and saying like, do not ever do this again. I do not want to receive it. I will be reporting it there's not a whole lot to do after the fact if it's happened to you. But I think if you want to participate in sexting, be it either verbal dirty talk or the transmission of photos and videos, there are some tips that you can kind of activate to keep yourself safer. 
Um, I think the most important thing is to accept that there's no risk-free way to, to send sexy pictures. You know, you can be the most tech savvy person in the world, but ultimately it comes down to how much you can trust the person on the other end. And like, can you ever really totally trust someone? I don't really know. So it's not to slut shame. I have no judgment against sending nudes. I have done it. Um, but it has to be done with an awareness that there's always going to be risk. You know, talking about even apps with disappearing images like Instagram and Snapchat, where you send it to them and it goes away after they've viewed it. You can't ever truly guarantee they're not taking a photo of that with an iPad or showing somebody over their shoulder. And even those apps that they'll alert you if someone takes a screenshot, but you can't like once they've done the screenshot, even though you know it's there, like they still have that. So those risks will always exist. And, you know, in my book, I spoke with a technology reporter who sort of helped develop some common sense advice. You can use platforms like WhatsApp that offer end-to-end encryption. And what that is, she explained to me, is like it's the difference between sending a message on a postcard where everybody can view it versus sending it in a sealed envelope. So that will give you some protection against hacking and data leaks. Um, and then another really common thing, don't show your face or any identifying markers like tattoos. And then God forbid, if something happens, whether it's malicious on someone's intent or a data leak, you know, you'll have some plausible deniability and you can get real creative with sending photos that don't show your face. That's probably not the part of it yourself that they're hoping to see anyway. If you're sexting, um, try to take pictures in a nondescript background if possible without like family photos peeking over your shoulder or like really specific wallpaper that's only at your house, Um, you know, and and then be really clear about your expectations too. Like if your expectation is that they delete it right away, you know, make sure you say so. You can even ask to see them do it and be aware of your photo settings as well. You want to make sure nothing's going to automatically uploaded to the cloud. You should do that on your end and check with them too. So I, you know, I am, I am pro sexting if it's done within the context of like risk management, because that's kind of the best we can get. I think that's really well said. It's, there's a lot of fun that comes with sexting and sending consensual images back and forth or videos. And it's an important part of building intimacy, I think, for a lot of folks, especially when people are super busy or they're long distance. I mean, that can be what sustains um, a connection. But it, it, it does come with a lot of risks for people, especially when we live in a culture that still has so many double standards um, for women. So it's okay Absolutely. for men to share these kinds of images or even demand and expect mm-hmm. these kinds of images. And I'm not, I don't agree that it's okay for them, but it's condoned to demand or expect. But women are so often shamed and, and castigated for any kind of participation in this experience. So the risks definitely are bigger for, for women in this case, but there, I love the tips that you provided and and think that that can create a safer context. Um, Absolutely. I'm also a big fan of watermarking images. (laughs) Smart, smart. Yeah. And if somebody is kind of putting you in a position where they are implying that it's expected, I mean, like that's a red flag to begin with, but, you know, let's say it's not done in a a terribly creepy way, you know, you can always get out of it and just say like, oh, I'd rather show you in person in a text and keep things flirty and keep that energy and that connection like you were talking about going without pushing past a boundary that's important to you. 
Yeah, you do not owe anyone your nudes. And mm-hmm. if somebody's really pushing for that, giant neon red flag. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> Well, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the dating landscape in the last couple of years? Oh, gosh. Um, Some of them have not been great. You know, I think there's some data to show there's like a rise in rough sex behaviors without getting your partner's buy-in, which is really, really terrifying and something that we all need to look out for. Like, it's, it's scary out there the way that these images of, you know, rough sexual play have kind of proliferated in the space and are making people think that that's part of every normal sexual exchange. And it can be if it's very safely, securely navigated first in a conversation before it's attempted. But it is certainly, you know, things like choking coming out of nowhere from a partner is very dangerous and very scary. So that's one thing that came up in some interviews. And um, Debbie Herbenik, has, uh, the, the researcher, has released some great papers on that as well. But on the, on the lighter side of things, I really do think there is a greater sense of agency from this age group about not having to do anything they don't want to do, you know, feeling a lot more informed and empowered to have healthy interactions that make both partners walk away feeling good. Like that concept, the concept of consent, nobody was talking about that when I was in college. And now it's like practically old news because it's so assumed that we should know that, that it's so foundational, but now it actually matters. Now it's something that like, even if college students are sort of joking about it and maybe not taking it super seriously, like, oh, you got to get consent the same way that your mom would like tell you to wear a raincoat. At least it's being talked about and it's in the forefront of people's minds that it's important. So I, I do think there is there is hope that we've, we've come a long way and things will continue to become more considered between partners. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot more conversation about some of the different dimensions of sexuality and consent that are in the forefront of people's minds. That said, there is still this push away from comprehensive sex education. Mm -hmm. And there have been, I've been hearing a lot of um, concerns from women um, expressed after the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, and how that's affected their perspective on dating and sex. And I'm really curious what you're hearing around that. I think there's obviously a quite a bit of very duly earned fear and stress around the repeal. Um, excuse me, the overturning. And, um, I think that comes with the unfortunate reality that like we talked about women being the gatekeepers of sex, it's going to come down to them more because women are the ones who are going to bear the brunt of these consequences. So it's, it's pretty horrible to have to add that layer of like, would I raise a child with this person on top of, you know, a moment where you should just be able to have sex and have an experience and enjoy physical pleasure. You shouldn't have to have that layer of concern. And I think it's really causing people to be perhaps a bit more conservative and scared in ways that they absolutely shouldn't have to be. Um, you know, rise in IUDs. I think that's pretty common in these reactionary moments. I know that happened when Trump was first elected in 2016. There was a big rush for providers to get IUDs because a lot of women kind of predicted something like this would happen. And, you know, it took a while. Um, but unfortunately, here we are. So those are kind of the 
the big things I'm hearing, but also uh, in a, a message that nobody's going to take this line down. You know, the fight has continued uh, with access to medication abortion. Like, I think we're never going to give up on the right to abortion, you know, abortion on demand, abortion without apology. And I think that's really reflective of how women are feeling these days. And even though there's fear and frustration, there's a lot of resolve to take it to our representatives and do what we can do to keep those protections safe. Yeah, I I agree. I've seen such a um, a disheartening uh, level of dehumanization that a lot of women are feeling in the way that their bodies are being regulated without their consent Mm -hmm. and also such an energy around protecting their autonomy sexually. So it's, it's been an interesting polarity to observe and uh, no doubt that plays a, a huge role in how people experience pleasure and how they decide how to prioritize pleasure in their lives, whether they're in college or later in life. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that you brought up in your book that I just think is so important is the permission to withdraw consent. I think so many people, especially younger people, feel like once they've said yes, they have to go through with whatever is on the table, whatever's happening during that sexual experience. And that's just not the case. But how do you recommend um, people navigate any pressure or shame or fear around changing their mind once they've begun to be sexual and they realize I'm not really feeling this. Totally. Um, I think that's so important to come back to this idea that no is a complete sentence and you're always allowed to change your mind. But I think it's important to kind of affirm the very real reasons why that's hard. You know, like if you are younger, you haven't had the practice and the confidence that comes with speaking your mind. That's one thing. And even if you aren't in your teens or twenties, you know, it can be really hard to say no to a first time experience because assuming they're a kind, empathetic, receptive person who would hear your no, even if that's the case, you know, you don't want to like let them down. You don't want to necessarily stop the sexual interaction altogether. You you don't want to keep going. You just don't want it to be this thing that you already said yes to. So that can be really, really challenging. You don't want to interrupt the rhythm. And if you don't know your partner well enough yet, that can be challenging. So like, yeah, in a perfect world, we would all feel empowered to confidently say no. That's the future we want to work towards, right? But we don't live in that perfect world yet. And the shame around sex is really real, you know, and the double standard that women face being scared of being labeled a tease if they, you know, revoke consent to a certain act like that's real. And we have to acknowledge that pressure and affirm it and say, like, it's okay if you feel that way, but you've got tools at your disposal. Right. So you can verbally redirect them into something that you liked before. And I'm a big fan of using scripts. So you can just say like, oh, like that was so hot when you were doing like X, Y, Z, like, can we do that again? And keeping that language sort of sexually charged can help indicate like you want to redirect, you know, you don't want to end it. You just want to stop doing that, you know? And then for those of us who are still working on feeling confident with our skills, talking during sex, like that's okay. You will hopefully get there because it's really important to be able to speak up during sex. But if you're not there yet, you can physically redirect them, you know, like take their hand and put it back on a part of your body that like feels good and feels safe. And that's a great way to kind of change up the dynamic 
Um, and then I am also super in favor of like bathroom break, like, oh, hang on a second. I got to I gotta run to the bathroom because as like one of the sources in my book who suggested this said, like, nobody's going to question why you're going to the bathroom, like pretty self-explanatory and like always allowed, you know? And so once you have that space, like whether you have to pee or not, you can take it as a moment to, to regroup. You'll be out of the heightened sexual state. You'll be by yourself. You can decide like, how do I want to approach this? Do I want to say something? What do I want to say? Or maybe you just want to leave, you know, like I am totally pro lying. If it's going to be what gets you out of what is something that's uncomfortable, I would rather have people leave a situation that's starting to not feel great with a made up lie. Like I have to go walk my dog, whatever it is. Hopefully you'll come up with something way more convincing than me. I'm not a good liar and get yourself out of a situation (laughs) that doesn't feel good. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think it is sometimes really scary for people to exercise the no that is their right to exercise mm-hmm. because I mean I I hear so many stories of people saying no and having a partner react really poorly sometimes even violently mm-hmm. and that kind of fear is usually what keeps so many women in a place of um paralysis and not being able to exercise a no because they're afraid either that it won't be respected and then they have to sit with that um, or they'll be guilted or even hurt. And so I think it's such a great idea to bring something up if you feel unsafe that is not about your partner and anything that they are doing that feels good or not, right? This uh, outside thing, I have to go to the bathroom or I'm feeling nauseous, right? Something like that to kind of shift the mood without putting blame in, in the other person's lap. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about the, the trauma response of fight or flight and that, that has happened, but that's not the full story. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like fight, flight, or freeze. And we can get paralyzed, like you Mm -hmm. said, and not know what to do and not have the words to address the situation. And whatever you can do to break that very valid response of freezing in a traumatic situation and freezing doesn't mean that you're tacitly accepting what's going on. Like that's a valid reaction and you have tools at your disposal to Mm -hmm. respond in a way that's not at all about what's going on. You can break the tension. You can say you heard your phone vibrate. It can be anything. And sometimes that's enough of a jarring response to sort of get you out there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Love those ideas. So if, if you had any other tips for dating for young people, what would they be? What are your top three? Yeah, totally. Well, we talked about rule number one, no is a complete sentence. You are not morally compelled to give any more reason than a no. I think that's always rule number one. Um, number two, I think if you're it's kind of stuck not knowing what you're looking for in a romantic relationship. Look for partners who ask follow-up questions. You know, someone who's interested in the why of you. You know, it's not enough to say like, oh, what do you want to do? What's your dream job? And they say teacher. You want someone who's going to push it a little bit further and say like, oh, why do you want to be a teacher? What about that appeals to you? Because then they're not just looking to get to know you. They want to understand you. And that understanding is really crucial to building any kind of a relationship. So that's a second piece of advice. And then I think as like hokey as it might sound, like never stop trying new things. You know, in my experience, it's not variety that's the spice of life. It's novelty. 
And when we get bored and stop finding fulfillment and there's an absence of new experiences, like that's when you can get in trouble. Like I remember when I was working at Cosmo, I was in charge of assigning and editing the sex positions of the week, which is very iconic and very Cosmo. It was quite an honor. And, you know, when you're doing these stories week after week for digital media, like they can get the iterations can get a little crazy and a little like, who's really doing that? And, you know, totally fair critique. Like who's really looking at these diagrams and putting their legs behind their head in that way. Um, But the point isn't always to like expertly nail a new sex position. Sometimes it's just the experience of doing something you've never done before with your partner. And even if all you do is like fail miserably at it and have a good laugh, you know, that act enough is enough to, to, to bring you closer and to have a novel experience that maybe inspires something that is more arousing and a fun memory to share together. So never stop trying new things. I think those are my three big ones. I love that. You know, your second and your third tip to me really sound related and it's about Mm -hmm. staying curious and inquisitive, right? Having a partner who wants to know you under the surface is really important, but that's also where there's a lot of adventure in, in, and novelty because we make assumptions that we know our partners really deeply, but we're always evolving as human beings. So there's always more to discover about ourselves and about our partner. And that's true emotionally as well as sexually. Absolutely. Very well said. (laughs) Well, Allie, thanks so much for coming on the show today and talking about dating and sex. And I'm really curious where people can find you if they want to follow your work or find your book. Absolutely. Well, book is everywhere. Books are sold. Um, You can get it from your local indie store, um, bookshop um, online, Barnes and Noble, all those places. And then you can also get me on Instagram. And um, that is Allie, A-L-I underscore Drucker, D-R-U-C-K-E-R. And same for Twitter, although Elon Musk has kind of ruined Twitter. So you'll probably have better luck finding me on Instagram. Fair. All right. Well, thank you again, Ellie. This was so lovely chatting with you. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.